get ready to go into God's Word this morning. Father God, thank you for your goodness and faithfulness. And just thank you, God, how you show yourself, especially in ways you work through people like Sarah and those that are giving of their lives to do a good thing, do good things for you, for your kingdom, God. And we're so grateful and thankful. We pray, God, as we look into your word this morning, God, that you would uh, illuminate our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. It made me pray. Amen. Keep you a little bit longer today because we needed to hear from Sarah. We needed to hear from someone out here. That's so. Hold tight. Hold those lunch plans, okay? You'll be okay. I have to ask you guys, have you ever wanted to do something good, yet you found yourself afraid because of the possible negative backlash that you might get from doing that thing? I mean, some examples might be, especially as a believer, um, examples could be sharing your faith with someone. Or maybe opening, uh, openly reading your Bible uh, at school or at work or on the train or on BART. Or refusing to participate in a certain behavior that you feel is dishonoring to your faith. We've been looking at, in the book of First Peter, we've been looking at what it means for a follower of Jesus to live in a world that does not share our same values. Most recently, we've been looking at how a follower of Jesus is to respond to insults or to mistreatment that may occur due to living a life that honors Christ. And so that by their response, those people that are doing the mistreating might be actually drawn to Jesus because of how they act. Last week, we looked at how we are not to repay evil for evil or insult for insult but we're called to bless. You listen to that sermon while you're on vacation, right, George? Just want to make sure. Okay, good. Um, Just hard, difficult things that we can only do when the power of the Holy Spirit works works in and, and through us. Now, what we haven't talked about yet, though, what Peter has not addressed yet, is how do you deal with specific, specifically with the fear that can come with doing good or doing the right thing for Christ's sake. Really, it's this fear that can cause us to oftentimes to back down or even not do the very thing that we want to do and that we know is right to do for the sake of Christ. So this morning, the Apostle Peter is going to help us to deal with this fear by helping us to understand how we are to suffer for doing good, and why it is better to suffer for what is good rather than to suffer for what is what he calls evil. In this first section we're going to see here in chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, Peter instructs us on how to suffer for doing what is good. Okay, that's going to be our first section, how to suffer for what is good. So let's jump right in. Um, Verses 13 and 14 says this, Now, who is there to harm you? If you are zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Peter starts off by asking this rhetorical question that essentially says that no one can actually harm us for doing good. In the book of Romans chapter eight says this, what then shall we say to these things about being persecuted and things like that? It says, if God is for us, who possibly can be against us? 
As a 16th, as a 16th century Scottish reformer, John Knox used to say, with God on his side, man is always in the majority. I love that. Notice that Peter tells us that no one can truly harm us if we are zealous for doing what is good. So Peter's assumption here is that as followers of Jesus, we are going to be zealous, or as in some of you in your Bible says, eager to do what is good. Eager to do what is good. As followers of Jesus, we are called to a different standard of living, aren't we? We're called to a standard of living that through the power and strength of the Holy Spirit is different than the culture around us. Colossians chapter 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, we're going to talk more about that in a little bit, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, the reality is that when we decide to not participate in things that dishonor God and become, as he says here, zealous for or eager to do good, we may suffer. There's a good chance it will happen that we will suffer. We could be ridiculed. We could be mocked. We could be made fun of or shunned or even get passed over for a promotion because we honored our biblical principles. Yet notice that he says that if we suffer, he says, for doing good, not for doing bad, he says, if we suffer for doing good, he says, we are blessed. Now that word is just thrown out like crazy, blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, here what this, what this word means is we are a recipient of God's favor. It literally means it's the highest good that we could possibly have happen to us. Is when we do this. Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed, or like that word means happy, content, happy are those who are, are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all things of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Peter now, he goes on to instruct us to, to honor Christ in our suffering for doing what is good. Okay, first be zealous, be eager. Now he says, honor Christ in our suffering for doing what is good. Let's look at the verses uh, 15 through 17 on this one. He says, but in your hearts, honor, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And do it, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you for, for revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So just as we are to be zealous or eager for what is good, we are to honor, as he says here, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Some of your NIV, it says, revere Christ as Lord. 
This means, what this really means is that we acknowledge the Lordship of Christ in our life, okay? We acknowledge that He is control of our lives. You see, it's one thing to claim to be a Christian, to know the right words, to say all the right things, to have a ton of Bible knowledge. It's a completely different thing, though, to live like Jesus is now on the throne of your life and that we relinquish fully full control to him. It's so often we want to say, I want Jesus in control of my life. I want him on the throne, but I want to still have one cheek on it myself. Right? I don't know. That's how I live. I know. Of course Jesus is on the throne of my life. Scoot over there, buddy. You know? That's how we live our lives. But that's what he's saying. He's saying, if you want to understand this truly, what it really means to set him apart, what it really means to do this is to put him on the throne and relinquish all control, all control to him. That's what defines a true follower of Christ. This is what a disciple is. Someone who's relinquished control of their life to Jesus. If we will fully trust him and trust in the Lord, he promises, this is the cool thing about him, he promises to be a refuge and a source of strength for us. There's so many great verses in the Bible that talk about this. I just picked one. Psalms 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That's a great promise. Yet if we decide to live in disobedience and demand that we call the shots and we get to stay on that throne, and if we decide to live our lives in fear of what other people might say or what might people might do if we do good things that we feel called to do, then we're not at all experiencing the abundant life that God meant for us. We're basically, we're accepting the table scraps that the world says that's good enough. And God wants so much more for us. How tragic for a person to know that they are forgiven of their sins a child of God, yet unable to experience all that comes with our salvation and live in fear when it comes to living out the Christian life. That is tragic. So difficult. Peter tells us that when Jesus is on the throne of our lives, only then will we really be prepared to give an appropriate defense to why we are responding to the insults with grace and with love. It's what's making a difference in our life. Only then, only when he is on the throne can we fully understand how to respond. And why are we able to do that? Why are we able to respond with grace? He says it in this verse, he said, it is the, the hope that is in you. You're able to respond this way because there's a hope that is in you. Remember we talked about this at the very beginning of this, of this series, at the beginning of this letter, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 5, he said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercies, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance. There we talked all about what that inheritance looks like. That is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
as followers of Jesus, we are able to view our present circumstances in the light of hope, in the light of a hope that is absolutely certain. Because our hope is not based on our circumstances, right? It is based on the love person that is alive right now. It's based on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter tells us that when someone asks why we react the way we do to unjust treatment or suffering due to doing what we're doing good, we're able to be prepared, he said. Be prepared to give them a reason. Let me ask you this morning. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you? Okay, if that baby decides to just go for it, let, let, totally fine here, totally fine. If someone were to, let me ask you this, if someone were to ask you today what it means to be a follower of Jesus, could you do that? Could you truly, I'm not saying could you articulate perfectly what it means to be a Christian, that's what I'm saying. But can you articulate when you go through difficult times and someone goes, how did you react like that? How did you respond like that? And you go, well, let me tell you why. Not because you've got a script all ready to go, because you're able to speak out of your heart because of the hope, this incredible hope that you have that your circumstances don't define who you are. This isn't, this isn't, this doesn't make me who I am. This is part of this life that I live. But there's a lot more to it than that. A lot more to it. Can you give them a clear and meaningful description of that hope? And he says here with gentleness and respect. Not like, yeah, here, let me tell you why. Here's the book. Read it. Make sure you do what it says. No. Let me tell you what my experience is as a whole that I've experienced as I've gone through difficult times, as I've, been, as I've had to struggle, as I've had to, as I've, as I've had to deal with other people telling me, why do you read that? Or why would you possibly believe that? Oh, that's so narrow-minded. How is it that you're able to respond so I don't know, I have all the answers, and you might not understand what I have to say, but here's my heart. What's Sarah's doing? Sarah's doing a bit. There's people that are hurt and wounded. They want to know why Why do you deal with life the way you deal with it? Why do you cut it out? That's a scary thing, isn't it? Because then sometimes we feel like we got to go, oh, I got to just right there. Oh, go. What is that? What that flanker say again? No. We share the hope. The hope that we know. The hope that love. Notice that Peter tells us that we're also to have a good conscience. We're supposed to have a good conscience when we share this hope. Now, nothing tarnishes our testimony more than living our lives contrary to this hope, right? People are watching us. People are watching. There's nothing that tarnishes it more. And we're going to blow it. We're going to make mistakes. That's the beauty of grace and that we know about. So when we do make a mistake, we can go, when they say, how come you did that? We say, you know, you're right. There's my struggle. This is why I need Jesus so bad. <laughs> I just, I, it's impossible to live without him. And that opens up even more conversation. As the saying goes, we've all heard it. We need to walk our what? We need to walk our talk. Our talk, our walk? Yeah, walk our talk. Yeah, <laughs> we need to walk our talk. We do. We need to be able to say, we need to back up with our lives. That's what he's saying here. We need to back it up, not to be perfect. I don't know about you, but I can't stand being around perfect people. 
I can't stand it. Can you trip or have a, you know, zit or something? What's something? People don't want to be around that. But they want to be around people that are authentic and real with the hope that is in them. People want hope. We all want hope. But the world is just dying for hope. And we have that hope. And people can see it the most oftentimes when we're reviled for that very thing that we, that, that hope that we have. Now Peter goes on to say that the reason we are to share the hope that was within us with gentleness and respect and have a good conscience is so that if we are insulted or we're slandered for doing what is good, he says, those who insult us might be put to shame. Interesting. The word shame here literally means to be overthrown and left at the mercy of, our, of your enemy. It's a reference to utter defeat and disgrace in battle, more than it is about being embarrassed or feeling guilty. It's feeling like, I lost that. When we respond to insults with gentleness and respect and with a lifestyle that backs up our response, those insulting us are left defeated in their attempt to truly, really hurt us. They can't. Because we're living life like we should through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 17 tells us that God, it is God's will um, that we, for his people to live faithfully and to do what is right, even if the response of unbelieving world causes us to suffer. The good news we talked about this a few weeks ago. The good news is we know that God is sovereign. Remember that word we talked about? That nothing happens outside of his knowledge or control. Nothing. God never goes, oops, ever. He knows what's going on. He's in control. This verse is not saying that it is God's purpose that followers of Jesus suffer. It is more that it is God's will that Christians remain faithful and obedient even if suffering does happen. In his book, A Sweet and Bitter Providence, John Piper says this, Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us to feel in our bones not just know in our heads that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning up after it. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amazing. So true. So these are Peter's instructions on how. Okay? These are his instructions on how to suffer for doing what is good. So, now in verses 18 to 22, the second chunk here, he now turns to the reasons why it is better to suffer for doing good rather than to suffer for doing evil, okay? And the first reason is found in verses 18 to 20 here. There's the reason is that it is the way of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus, okay? The one that we follow. Verse 18 says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 
The premise of this verse here is that Jesus Christ, our great God, King, and Savior, the most loving and caring person that ever lived, suffered in order to bring us into a right relationship with God. That is why Jesus came, to bring us into a right relationship with God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, 521 says, For our sake he made him, God made him to, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus gave us an example of how to suffer for righteousness' sake, for what is good, by ultimately suffering and dying on a cross. Remember back in verse 11 of chapter 2, Peter emphasized that we are to follow Jesus' footsteps. That's what we do. He said, to this, remember the suffering he was talking about, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. What this means is to be a Christian. What this means is what it is to be a Christian. A Christian is one who follows Jesus. A follower. You've noticed that I say that a lot, right? Instead of saying Christian, I don't have no problem saying Christian, but I like to say a follower of Jesus because that really explains better what we are. But what a Christian means is when we follow Jesus, we go where he goes. Okay? We, we can't say, ah, ooh, I liked it so far, but it's getting a little dicey. But we go where he goes. We do what he did. We, we do, we follow him. We're actual followers. You can't be a true follower of Jesus and decide not to follow him wherever he leads. That is not a follower. That's an observer. There's too many people that are observers of Jesus out there. It's easy to observe him. That's a piece of cake. I'll observe him from afar. But to follow, that is difficult. Very, very good. That requires supernatural strength that he supplies for us. And a lot of times, people aren't willing to do that. Well, we see that Jesus was persecuted and died for doing good. Yet he rose to life. This gives us tremendous hope, you guys. Tremendous hope that when or if we suffer unjustly for doing good in the name of Jesus, we not only are identified with him, but we'll one day be vindicated with him at his resurrection. No matter what people say, no matter what people do to us for doing good, because of Jesus, we will have the ultimate victory. That's a cool thing to have in the back of your head when you're feeling slandered, you're feeling put down. I win at the end. We win. If there's, I can handle being put down. I can handle the, I get to win. Because of Jesus. That is fantastic motivation. No matter what people do. Now, as we move on here, I need to state up front that these next two verses have a reputation for being the most difficult verses in the New Testament to interpret. Okay? That's the beauty of doing this expository teaching. We go verse by verse by verse, and I wasn't excited about that. That's pretty good at one point. But that's what we do. And it's important that we do that. Martin Luther said back in the day, he said, um, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still don't know what he's talking about. Well, this is really weird stuff. So as difficult as this passage is to interpret and understand, 
What Peter is really doing here is he's trying to prove or to show that it's always better to do good and suffer rather than to do evil and suffer. So let's, let's take a look at these couple verses here. Verses 19 and 20 say, say this. In which, Jesus, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Let's break it up. Well, let me... I mean, this brings up some questions, okay? You know, who are these spirits and where are these persons? Where, where are they? Where's this prison? When did Jesus go there? What did he proclaim to them? What does Noah have to do with this whole story? Well, let me tell you what I think is going on here. Commentators make a good case that Peter is telling us that at some point after Jesus' death, probably after his resurrection, but before his ascension into heaven, he went someplace and gave this victory proclamation to spirits who were being imprisoned. Many commentators also believe that those imprisoned spirits were literally fallen angels or evil spirits who had spread evil in the days of Noah. You know, back in those days, the days of Noah is recorded, if you want to look back at it later on, it's in Genesis chapter 6. We know that there was great evil and spiritual darkness all over the earth. Everybody, the, the Bible says that everybody except Noah's family was disobedient to God. It was so bad that God's patience eventually reached its limit and he pronounced judgment for it. Now, if we dig deeper into Genesis chapter 6, Genesis describes these evil and, okay, get to your Harry Potter thing. This is, um, he's got these called these, these evil angelic beings that are called the sons of God. Who get this, they began to impregnate women in Noah's day and further corrupted the human race. The offspring of these evil relationships were very evil themselves. So after Genesis and after the flood, where did they go? What, hap- what happened? It was everybody was killed except Noah's family. Peter tells us that they were imprisoned where they wait for their future final judgment. And Peter tells us that before his ascension into heaven, Jesus went there and proclaimed victory. I want to see that movie made. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. The story of Noah is a great example of being zealous, okay, being zealous for what is good. In his obedience to God, Noah suffered all sorts of ridicule from those around him, yet God did not forget him. Something like, what, 120 years of building an ark and they hadn't seen rain? Can you imagine the ridicule? I don't know if any of you have ever done this in the past, but yet Bill Cosby has a great um, thing on Noah. It's pretty hilarious talking about how the neighbors are getting on him. Um, but it's, it's, he had to suffer all this stuff, but they, he was not forgotten. And there was only eight of them, okay? Out of the entire population of the world, there was only eight people, okay? They were vastly outnumbered by the evildoers around them. I mean, we look at this. We outnumber them just here at this little church. We only had eight people. That's it. But remember, God's not 
forget, didn't forget him. And you know what? Here's the lesson from this. You might feel outnumbered. You might feel like I'm the only one that is suffering for doing what is good as a follower of Jesus. Here's the lesson here. Remember, you're not forgotten. We are not forgotten when we feel like we're standing up against all this at work or at school. We're not. We are not forgotten. This also tells us again that Christ is superior over all powers everywhere. And we have no need to worry about the persecution or the evil that might be behind it. We don't have to worry. He went down and said, I won. Victory. It's done. Judgment is coming. And being identified with Christ, we get to share in that same victory. In verse 21 to 22, Peter gives us the other reason why it is better to suffer for doing good rather than for doing evil. He said it is the way to spiritual victory. Okay? The other reason, it's the way to spiritual victory. Let's look at first, the last two verses. They said, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What Peter is doing here, he is making this parallel between Noah's family and baptism. Okay, stick with me here. He's making this parallel here. Okay, first of all, nowhere in the Bible does it say that baptism actually saves a person. Nowhere. The people that say, will say, believe that, will, you will actually use this verse. That's not what he's saying. Because we know that salvation comes by grace through faith alone, right? That's the only way we are saved. You see, as the floodwaters cleanse the earth of God's wickedness, so the waters of baptism indicates man's cleansing from sin. He even says that baptism can't remove dirt. He says it right here. It can't remove it from the, bo from the body. And it's because this word dirt here actually refers to moral filth. That's what it means. Baptism won't save us by washing away our moral filth. That happens at the very moment of salvation. That's when it happens. Baptism is what Peter refers to here, here as an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's an appeal to God to fully know and be identified with his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his cleansing. That's what baptism is all about. Baptism saves us not by virtue, any virtue of itself, but by, but by our belief in the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's what baptism symbolizes, okay? A person goes into the water to symbolize the death of oneself and identification with Jesus at his burial, his death and his burial. This water, it represents a cleansing, just as the floodwaters back in Noah's day represented a cleansing of the evil from on the earth. Now, coming out of this, of the water, represents being raised in new life in Christ as we identify with his resurrection. Next week we get to celebrate this. I can't wait. I'm so excited. We got a couple people, new believers, that are going to actually do this. They're going to share their testimony. And you're going to hear how God has brought them from an old life to a new life in Christ. 
encourage you to be here. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a good time. You come early to eat also. Um, we also see here in verse 22 that Jesus not only suffered unjustly to bring us to God, but he also won, here it is again, victory and authority over all powers, no matter how evil. You guys, being identified with Jesus in his victory over sin and death is fantastic motivation for us not to fear being zealous, excited about being into doing what is right and what is good. As followers of Jesus, we don't need to fear ridicule. We don't need to fear judgment or suffering that may come from doing good. We can be zealous or eager to do good and even honor Christ if we end up suffering for doing so because we know it is the way of our Savior in whose footsteps that we follow. And then it leads ultimately to our victory because of our life in Christ. I want to encourage you to close this morning. We have prayer after every service. And today I want to encourage any of you, there's someone up here to pray with you if you'd like to pray for this very thing. If there's some fear that's been happening in your life or you just would like some someone to pray for you that God would just really help you to be that person that he wants you to be, to understand his love and grace and mercy encourage you to do that. So let us pray right now. Father God, I thank you for your word. Thank you for how much it helps us to understand the incredible work you did to bring us to yourself. To send your son to be tortured and murdered for us. To suffer for us so that we have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Father, may that be motivation for us to be willing to deal with whatever would come our way for doing good for you, whatever that might be. God, I pray for those in this room that are desiring to witness to a neighbor, to a friend, or to even a family member that are scared to do that. Totally understandable. Pray, God, that you would give them strength, power of your Holy Spirit to be willing to deal with whatever may come their way because they know they have the victory in Jesus. That's who they pray. Mm-hmm.